0: Welcome to Divorce Explained, the podcast where we answer your questions and navigate the process of divorce together. Sharing real stories and personal experiences, this is your guide through it all. With your hosts, family law specialist Steve Benmore and divorce lawyer and strategist Leanne Townsend.
1: Well, let's jump into our subject of this week. Did you want to introduce it?
0: Sure. So, our topic today is parenting time and how it's dealt with, uh, with respect to, in particular, young children, uh, such as infants and toddlers, because, you know, the needs of children change as they grow older. A, a baby's needs are not the same as a teenager's. And um, I've found with clients that I've had, this can be um, sort of a-, a heated topic at times. So, I think it's a, a good one for us to chat about.
1: Yeah, and I'll tell you, there are a bunch of different uh, vectors in this conversation. One is the child, the needs of the child. Then there's each parent's separate, sometimes opposing perception of the needs of the child. And separate and apart, there's a whole other vector, which is societal norms which have significantly changed in the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. And then to add a, a more complicated factor is the role of a judge, an assessor or a mediator who also may very well have differing views on the perception of what the child needs, the perception of the parent's perception of what the child needs and the assessor judge or mediators perception of the interplay between the societal norms and what that particular child needs so it's a multi-layered complicating complicated <laughs> and complicating uh, analysis
0: it is um and i uh... It's interesting because, you know, even just in my own situation, I, you know, got separated and divorced um, in around 2005. And at that time, it was different even how um, infants and toddlers are treated than it is now. So I think uh, as we kind of get into the meat of the topic, um, you know, some people may be surprised um, and some maybe not.
1: Yeah, and I, I guess on this subject, I um, w- at the last few minutes, I want to share um, a different perspective on um, how housing is also very much a factor in the determination of what is uh, the most appropriate parenting schedule. So we'll get to all of that. So that was really just an introduction to our viewers on the various concepts. So let me begin by just sharing with you. When I graduated law school in 92, and I was shortly thereafter, 94, called to the bar, and I started practicing family law, when it came to parenting schedules, there was really no difference between a parenting schedule for a three-month-old versus a 13-year-old versus a 16-year-old, because it was quite frankly very simple. It went something along the following lines. The parents are split up, custody goes to the mother, access goes to the father, And many of the court orders specifically said language like this, sole custody to mother, access to father uh, on reasonable notice. Without a particular schedule, they effectively gave all parenting decision-making authority to the mom. It gave almost no time and no decision-making authority to the father. And that was in the early 90s. So here we sit in 2021, and you, Leanne, and I we are paid thousands if not tens of thousands of dollars by parents who have split up where the societal norms have so significant, so radically changed that now we have very high level high conflict disputes over the subject of parenting and if it was still 1992 or 1993 or 1994 i i just i'm absolutely shocked to know that in my short legal career the tides have moved so much and i'm sure you can understand what i'm talking about leanne because now the subject matter of gender is almost irrelevant to the subject of parenting yet there is this sort of old way of thinking that even parents today are still thinking in a very traditional way. And that complicates the cases involving custody access and parenting decision-making authority. So let me, tell, let me know what you think about all that.
0: Um, well, I think all of that is true. And I think that, you know, the biggest change that's happened is, you know, dads are um, more involved you know, with their children than they used to be, uh, you know, generations ago. I don't know about in 1994, 1995, but, you know, the reality is that, you know, modern day dads are much more hands on with their children. They're much more involved in the day to day. They're, you know, they're stay at home dads and all of that. And with the greater involvement of dads uh, with their children, um, you know, the courts have made adjustments to that. And, you know, we see that the, the norm is really, um, you know, an equal parenting schedule, if that's what uh, both part, if that's what, you know, if dad wants them, you know, half the time. Um, and we're, I, um, you know, see problems and I, you know, I like, even though I always have to put on my lawyer hat and be objective, um, one of the scenarios that, you know, often pulls at my heartstrings as a mom, is I've seen cases where there's, you know, 10 months, I had a, a client actually um, last year who had a 10-month-old baby. Probably uh, still nursing. Baby was still nursing and they were splitting up and dad wanted overnights and she was willing to do whatever she could to give daytime um, access and she was pumping milk, but she was opposed to the overnights and dad brought a motion and in that particular case, the judge agreed that dad should have the baby uh, on two overnight. So not even just one, but two. And mom was just, you know, mortified. Uh, it was very traumatic and upsetting for her. She, you know, felt that she was being forced to wean the baby because she wasn't sure if she'd be able to keep her milk supply up the same way and how that might affect things. And she was absolutely shocked that a 10 month old nursing baby would be ordered to spend overnights with dad. And dad had been involved with the, with the child since birth. He had, you know, he had been very hands on, um, but still um, that was, you know, it was an upsetting decision for her. And, and I understand it. Like, I, I know, you know, um, that's a tough thing when you're a mom and you're nursing to, you know, be apart from your baby, because often they nurse the most in the night too, when they're that age. So. Um, I think a lot of people are surprised to hear that that type of decision is being made by courts.
1: And just to take a step back for our viewers, um, this is a subject matter that Leanne and I are participants in the legal system, but we are not the rudders on the ship. We're not controlling societal norms. We are advocates. We're hired by parents. Who make arguments in front of judges and mediators and in some cases even assessors. And I just want to be very clear that the, the thoughts and the, um, the dialogue that you hear today uh, are not reflective of our own personal views. Uh, at the end of the day, um, we really channel our clients' views and preferences, obviously mm-hmm. in the context of legal advocacy. Uh, the reason I say that is because this subject that we're covering today is on the same level of most constitutional and human rights arguments. Meaning, is it right for a woman to have the right to abort a child during her pregnancy? Is it right for same sex couples to marry? Is it right for um, the government to mandate that stores cannot open on Sunday? I mean, those are all major radical legal evolutionary events that have occurred over the last 50 years in Ontario. And now we're touching on something that is sensitive. And there are those on opposite sides of this subject. And Leanne and I are not on a side. We are simply um, sharing and dialoguing on a subject that is actually very very dear to a lot of people's hearts and and leanne you use the word pulling on your heartstrings and it does because some of our cases we just go through the motions you know arguing a property case or a child support case but on the subject of whether a 10 month old child who is in the middle of being nursed by their mom is now being compelled by court order to be left in the care of the other of the other parent the father Uh, so that it disrupts the normal course of feedings. That's a very tough subject. And Mm -hmm. it's particularly tough for the lawyers who are simply advocating. And whatever side of the argument you were on, Leanne, I'm sure you were able to sympathize with both sides. But at the end of the day, I am happy to say that I was not the judge in front of you that had to decide that case because that was a tough call.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, definitely is a tough call. And definitely I've had, you know, clients on both sides of that issue. Um, this particular case is just very memorable to me because um, it did really pull on my heartstrings. And, you know, and dad was a very involved dad. You know, I mean, maybe it would have gone, you know, a lot of these cases can be very fact specific. If dad maybe hadn't been as involved, then maybe it would have been a different and quite result. Frankly,
1: I'm just debating you on the subject of the father being very involved because at the end of the day, we're dealing with a human being that was in the world for 10 months. So whatever judgment we may have on mom or dad as parents, it really only had a window of 10 months to judge them. Who's to say that mom is an inferior or superior parent to father's parenting? Who's to know at 10 months of age? At the end of the day, the child was carried for nine months by mom, possibly uh, in the company of father, who knows whether he was prenatally active or otherwise, who knows. But at the end of the day, the judges in family court on the subject of what what is an appropriate parenting plan for very young children is there is no black and white law on, and I want the viewers to understand that every case is fact-specific, but even more important is the point that I made at the beginning of this uh, broadcast, which is a lot of it has to do with the facts of the case, the arguments of the parents, and the judge that we draw who brings into the courtroom their own Preconceived notions of what is appropriate or not, and I can tell you this: I, after having done this for nearly thirty years, that early in argument, I'll hear words like, "A child should always be with their mother." Well, that completely debunks any sort of concern with respect to what the judges' viewpoints are, and that completely changes the direction of the advocacy that we give the client, whether we're representing the father or the mother. And let's add to the mix the fact that so many of our cases these days involve same-sex couples as well. And so what is the role of the other parent? The other It could be two fathers. It could be two mothers. It could be two fathers who have um, the surrogate mother involved. I mean, the reality is um, we're dealing in a new horizon in a new era with very complicated issues but what has not changed is that young children do need early attachment in fact there's a whole field of social work and psychology devoted to attachment theory and again i'm not a psycho i'm not a social scientist or a mental health professional but from having read enough Um, journal articles and heard from enough social scientists and psychologists on the subject, what we do with young children in the first few years of their life has a mammoth effect on their mental and emotional health for the rest of their life. And so the child that the one that you mentioned, Leanne, at 10 months old, who spent two nights a week with dad away from mom, in this case, the feeding source of off the boob, that can have a monumental effect on the child's personal development as a, as a young human being. And who's to know what would have happened if the parents stayed together, if the parents split up, but the child remained um, almost all of the time with mom for the first 18 months or two years, versus what happened in your case. Because we don't have a placebo, we don't have a comparative analysis on that particular child.
0: No, that's very true, and I think that's what makes you know these decisions so tough. Where I wouldn't want to be the judge, you know, in these cases, because as you just said, you know, basic attachment theory, um, you know, that could be interfered with um, potentially by. you know, a decision, you know, by a judge on this issue that could have lifelong, um, you know, implications for that child. And it's interesting, because, you know, from the reading that I've done, um, and again, I'm like you, Steve, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a, an expert on um, attachment theory or anything like that. But I have done quite a bit of reading on it. And, um, you know, my understanding was that there, you know, in the past, the theory was very focused on that there'd be a primary attachment. And often that, you know, for an infant that was to mom, especially because of the nursing and, or, you know, and just the fact she carried the baby in her womb and all of that, so often there, you know, the theory was that there there was this primary attachment to mom. But from what I understand, more recent research has emerged that if dad has been, you know, involved, even if the primary attachment is to mom, the benefit to the infant of having that time with dad, if they split up, even though the baby's, you know, just a baby and not, not a, you know, not even a toddler yet, that the benefit of that, the research supports that that is, is, you know, of more value to the, to the child than, um, having the primary attachment and maybe not starting nights with dad, you know, at such a young age, because, you know, even like 10, 15 years ago, um, you know with this sort of issue uh it seemed that the the experts on uh parenting and um you know, child psychology and whatnot. We're supporting the idea that infants and very young children, you know, may have more of an. They may not be ready for overnights. It may not be a good thing for them. It may not be in their best interests for, you know, a baby or a toddler to, especially a baby, to have overnights away from mom. If if there's a separation at that young age, and that that's something that should be gradually done as the child gets older. You know, whereas now, the, you know, because of the research that's been done that supports that, you know, that it's not you know, necessarily harmful to the child. Um, you know, that's why the courts, I think, have been making the decisions that they have been making is because there's research supporting that, you know, the greater good of the, you know, the time with dad is, you know, more beneficial than whether a primary attachment might be effective.
1: Yeah, and um, you know, as I hear you speak about the subject, I I, I can't help but say, as a observer um, in this field, and I've seen you know hundreds, if not thousands, of families in this situation, I sympathize with the parents uh, because they might be watching right now this this IG live, and they're wondering, well, what's the bottom line? What what happens if um, me and my ex me and my ex cannot agree on the parenting schedule for our three-month-old or our six-month-old or our one-year-old. What, what is the bottom line? What is the law? And the takeaway from this IG Live is uh, the law is what is in the child's best interest? What does that even mean? What does it mean for this child with these parents? Um, and then what about the other factors? What if it's a multiracial relationship? What about the various religious characteristics of each parent? What if the parents aren't of the same race, ethnicity, or religion? And what about the role of all of those factors in determining what the schedule should be? And so the layering of this issue is so great. And, and when we have no agreement, we're left with a courtroom, we're left with a judge, and unlike other areas of law, the judge that might be deciding this very sensitive issue may have no background in family law, no background in psychology, no background in social work, no, they may not even understand the word early attachment theory. And they are put in front of a case and they are being asked who is, where is this three month old gonna be Monday to Sunday? And you've got two parents making arguments. One, one they may not even be represented by counsel or one of them might be represented by counsel. One of them might be leading amazing case law while the other one doesn't. And this is where the frailties of the legal system show their cracks because the lawyer who is able to marshal the better evidence and make the stronger arguments May very well prevail, and then this affects at least three people. It affects the child and the parents um, for a very long time because the order that is made at that juncture will likely carry the day forever and so I'll give you one small example. I have a client, I had a client, and they had a, they had two young kids and The parents were splitting up and they were, the kids were really young. They were like uh, three and five, I think. And they couldn't agree on the parenting schedule. Um, Mom wanted dad to have no overnights and to have, you know, three or four days a week where the dad's time with child was, um, you know, a couple shifts here and there, you know, like three to seven, that sort of thing. And they couldn't agree. And so um, I was trying to push for mediation. I was trying to push for an assessment while they were still living together in the same home. And then one day dad comes home from work and the children and the mom are gone. And so she had moved out uh, unbeknownst to him and I was hired and Actually, I was already hired at that point, and I was trying to reach for an out-of-court resolution. Um, But under the circumstances, um, Dad comes home, sees the house empty, and we brought an emergency motion, and it was heard. And because the judge did not take kindly to the mother's action, the children were placed with father half of the time, which was radically different than what mom thought the outcome was gonna be. And years later, that became the de facto parenting schedule that the kids were with each parent half of the time. Um, had, they, had mom not done that, had mom not taken the law into her own hands, she might've ended up with a much better outcome in terms of where, it, when I say better, I mean better for her than where it ultimately went. So, the takeaway from that small example is that the judges don't like it when people take the law into their own hands and make decisions that um, usurp the rights of the other parent. And the judges will go the other way to level the playing field to remedy the wrong of one parent acting in a way that um, was unfair or at least perceived to be unfair. And so, what I've done in many of my cases involving young children where their parents are still together is I've involved a mental health professional very early in the case to assist the parents in developing principles of parenting while still cohabiting, and then developing a division of responsibilities while still cohabiting that will eventually lead to a division of responsibilities when they physically separate. Which makes it far less dramatic on the children's life experience than if it's done by a judge's um, uh, decision that is foisted on the family overnight. Um, I don't know, if, you know, what your thoughts are about using um, mental health professionals early in a separation, Leanne.
0: Um, I think it's very, very beneficial to do that. And I think, you know, in what you just said, Steve, you really hit the nail on the head of, you know, of what I think is the biggest takeaway of this whole topic, which is that if you are a parent and you're out there and you're in this type of situation, you know, I always advise clients to do their best to try to come to an agreement themselves with the other parent, whether it's with the help of a mediator, um, you know, they with their lawyers help, but really, you know, both parents know their child best. They are the ones who love that child. And you don't want to be putting, you know, the schedule of your 10 month old child, you know, into the hands of a judge who knows nothing about your family, And, you know, it may or may not have the, um, you know, training and background with respect to child development because, you know, that's not something that's necessarily mandatory um, for judges. Um, I'm sure they get some education on it, but, you know, they're not going to have the same the same background as a somebody, a mental health professional coming in to work with the family early on. And these are decisions that parents really, it's, you know, it's in their children's best interest if they can make them themselves um, and not involve the court. And it's in the parents' best interest.
1: Let me share one last thought before we wrap up on the subject of housing. And this is an, this is a, a real live story that I, I found very interesting. Um, this is during COVID actually, I I had a number of cases where the parents couldn't agree on who gets to buy the house out from the other. And in one of those cases, um, mom moved into her new home and um, dad wanted to buy the home from mom instead of it going on the market. And they couldn't agree on the terms of the sale. And it ended up in front of a judge. And it was fait accompli. Before we even opened our mouths, it was very obvious that the judge was going to order the sale of the home before any arguments were made. Um, and I acted for the father in that case who wanted to keep the house. And economically, it made no sense to force the sale of the home because there was no equity in the home. And after they sold it with a real estate commission, there was gonna be nothing left. And in that case also, the parties actually um, were very close on the value of the house, but the, the dispute wasn't even on the value of the house. It was on some of the details with respect to the payout of the second mortgage. So it wasn't about what was the right value of the home and it wasn't about who was gonna keep the home. Mom agreed that dad could keep the home. So the details of it really didn't didn't add up to a forced sale. But I want people to understand that when you put a case in front of a judge, the judge is not limited only to the outcome that the two sides present. So mom might present outcome A, dad might present outcome B. People somehow think that the judge has to choose between A or B, but the judge can choose C. The judge could write D, E, and F. The judge can do whatever you want once you put a case in front of the judge. So in this case, the judge ordered the sale. Okay, fine. Fast forward, um, I was before the same judge a couple months later, and but it wasn't for a hearing, it was for a conference. And in the course of the conference, the judge did not remember that I was the lawyer on the case of the sale of this house that I mentioned. And he shared a story Uh, that was sort of tangential to the second case. And he said, and he ordered the sale of the house in that other case, which he didn't remember that it was me on that case. And he explained that the reason he did, and wait for it, everybody, this goes to the psychosocial elements of what we talked about before, attachment theory and the... Um, the different views of what is in a child's best interest and uh, the, uh, the, the mental health considerations. So the judge says that it's his view that when a couple splits up, the home must be sold to force both parents to find new housing, new accommodations, so that the children come to experience two new homes instead of having one default home and the other one being the other parent's new home. His thinking was when children get to stay in the original matrimonial home, then they treat the other home as the secondary home as opposed to the two homes being considered equal homes. And I found that to be extremely interesting to get it from the mind of a judge. By the way, I'm not passing judgment on the judge. I'm just letting the viewers know this is one judge's view on what the role of housing is on the experience of children of divorce. And I could see it both ways. The one way was why make the children have two new homes when they already have one bedroom, one home, one neighborhood? What one that they are comfortable in? Why why disrupt that if that is something that the parents themselves can agree on? Just they couldn't agree on the dollar value. The other argument, which is the the judge's argument, is make these children experience two brand new homes so that both parents are on equal footing as they begin the next chapter of their life, and the children will eventually um, adjust. So it, it could go both ways. Um, but it was, it was an interesting, uh, for me anyway, it was an interesting viewpoint to hear how judges apply their own social mores to the question of uh, where the children should be and with which parent.
0: Yeah, no, and and that's such a good example, um, you know, of the importance, again, of parents, you know, as you say, the biggest takeaway I have for today is that for people, you know, if you can make the decision and get an agreement yourselves, um, it's much better than rolling the dice because you don't know what, you know, background the judge is bringing to the table, what their own life experience is that may be affecting Uh, their views and so it's better to keep it in your own hands and try and do your very best to work out some sort of resolution to these types of issues.
1: Excellent. Uh, Tough topic but I I hope the viewers understand that we've done our best to be respectful of all viewpoints, cultures, religions, uh, attitudes, uh, histories, um, and that whatever we said today is simply our reflection of what we've observed in the uh, legal system. So thank you, Leanne, and we will see you next week.
0: Thanks, Steve, and thanks to everyone for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Divorce Explained. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to head on over to Instagram and follow at Steve Benmore and at Leanne Townsend Life for more. And if you're looking for specific divorce services, you can visit benmore.com and leannetownsend.ca. We hope today's episode made you feel informed and inspired as you move along through your divorce journey. Tune in next week for Divorce Explained.